wrestling with GarageBand? Yes, I am. How can you tell? <laughs> I hate GarageBand. There. I think I'm getting... Yes, I'm actually having a signal now, so I'm going to put that down a little bit so there's no... There we go. Okay. What are you using by way of mic? I uh, have no choice but to use the built-in mic, but I'm in a quiet spot. Alrighty. So uh, this is about the best it's going to get here in the wilds of Manitoba. Ah, uh, and how is Winterpeg? Well, actually, it's not all that bad. Uh, just like at home, everything is really, really behind because of a terrible, terrible winter. Uh, there was no flooding this year, which was odd given the amount of snow that they had. But because they had such a slow thaw and a slow melt, it was uh, it's okay. And no mosquitoes yet. So, good. <laughs> oh, black flies and mosquitoes. When it rains, it pours, right? Yeah, it does. I don't know if they're going to have uh, much of an issue because there doesn't seem to be a lot of standing water around this year, and because uh, it was so so, um, it was such a, a, a late spring. And how was your Mother's Day? Uh, Mother's Day was fine. My showed up last night um, on Saturday. It was my dad's 80th birthday and Mother's Day on Sunday, so I really couldn't not come. Um, but I didn't tell them I was coming, so I just kind of showed up. Oh, that's the best. Yeah, so they were quite surprised. I just walked in, uh, handed them a couple of cards, and then walked right out <laughs> before they had an idea of what was going on. And uh, ah, it, was good. it was good. You know, when you hit about 80 or so, your mind starts to go, I swear I saw my son. Well, yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Why Apple want Beats by Dr. Dre, and it isn't for the wide bottom end. Spring is in the air, and so are airborne sneeze droplets. We'll look at the science behind the schnoz. Spurious correlations. We'll tell you why you shouldn't be alarmed by a rise in divorce rate and sales of margarine. I can't believe it's not butter. A drag queen with a full beard wins Eurovision. We'll explain as best we can. Plus, the leaked Beyonce Jay-Z concert writer that's actually too good to be believed, unless, of course, you're a MacBook-wielding midget looking for work. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. You figured out why Apple will spend $3.2 billion buying Beats Electronics. Now, you are the business guy. Yes. Correct. Now, it's your job, your career, to analyze this sort of stuff. Yes. Before I get into my theory, what was your reaction upon hearing the news? $3.2 That was my initial reaction. Okay. And that the, seems the, an awful lot of money. Well, let's think about it. Annual revenues for Beats is about 1.3 to 1.5. So this is a multiple of less than three. Yes. Not bad. Not bad at all. But you are buying, more than anything else, the cachet that comes with Dr. Dre. And it sounds like Apple is grasping at straws, like they've finally listened to what the world is saying. And the world has been saying since Steve Jobs died, you have no cachet anymore. Well, that's one way of looking at it, but I think I've cracked it. Would you like to hear my story? No, not at all. In other news... <laughs> a lot of people have been talking about why Apple would spend this kind of money on Beats, because it, on the surface, it doesn't seem like a very good idea. But actually, I, I think it is. 
Now, do you, here we go. It's true that Apple stores, we're talking about the retail stores, still boast the highest sales per square foot uh, of any retailer on the planet, okay? Mm -hmm. There is nothing more successful than an Apple store on a per square foot basis. However, growth has slowed. And even though the outlets may seem as crowded as ever, and it's just as hard to find one of those people in the blue shirts to help you out as ever, uh, same-store sales have been flat or have actually begun to decline over the past couple of years. Yeah, the same-store sales in March were down 5% after that standard Christmas bump. I have a question for you, though, because this is a very business-nerdy term, and I've always been apprehensive about using the term same-store sales. Do you know what same-store sales means? Yes, it means that year over year, what did that store generate in terms of revenue very close same store sales that is a store that's been open at least 13 months so for example you look at starbucks starbucks will report same store sales were up by 12 percent overall sales were up by 28 percent well of course because they opened up 300 new stores over the course of the year and everybody flocked to the new store to check it out you want a consistent benchmark for the success of a store so the store has to be open at least 13 months Okay, so Apple has, I don't know how many hundred stores, most of which have been open for more than 13 months. Yes. And the fact that they have been on this exponential growth curve for quite some time and are now flattening out has to be something that concerns everybody at Apple headquarters. And with no new products to display, there's no reason to go into the store. Customers are staying away. Meet, but at the same time, you know, these retail stores are very, very important to the Apple ecosystem. At the top of the Apple Store food chain, there has been all kinds of turnover. First of all, there was Ron Johnson. He was the guy who set up the Apple Retail Network in the first place. A couple of years ago, he decided that his work was done, and he was lured away to J.C. Penney to do the same sort of magic, but he was a failure, and he no longer has that particular job. Uh, he was replaced at Apple by a guy named John Browett. Now, John Browett was a Brit, and he came over from the U.K., where he was very successful setting up Dixon's, which is a U.K. discount electronics chain. Um, he did not do very well. He was a poor fit at Apple, and he was removed from the post. The new head is a woman named Angela Anhartz, or Ann, I can't pronounce her name properly, uh, uh, Arentz, Angela Arentz. And she used to run Burberry. Now, Burberry used to be this pretty staid, boring raincoat, overcoat company, but she managed to turn it into a global high fashion brand. So she knows, let's think about this, she knows a thing or two about what sorts of things people will put on their bodies for reason of function and style. And her job as senior vice president of retail at Apple is to make sure that the Apple stores get back on the growth track. Are you with me so far? I am. And this is not particularly new from the standpoint of Apple has always been that uh, big fashion accessory oriented uh, company. When they had the, the, the white earbuds they were the only ones who had earbuds that were white so when you got on the streetcar and you saw that every third person had white earbuds you instantly knew that they had an apple product fantastic marketing and design okay angela has a problem what of this issue of apple not having any new products for customers to play with in its stores if you've been to any of the Apple stores, though, you'll know that they sell a lot of non-Apple stuff, a lot of accessories, including a substantial amount of Beats merchandise. 
I'm looking at the Beat Solo HD uh, for 170 bucks. I'm thinking about buying them. Don't. They're crappy headphones. Are they really crappy headphones? Oh, they're terrible. I, if you look on my website, you'll find that uh, Time Magazine compared 3,000 different uh, headphones and earbuds. And sure, rank number one, Beats was way, way down the... Uh, uh, the, the ratings. If you go to google.com and you let the autocomplete finish your sentence, if you start by typing Beats by Dr. Dre R, there are four autocompletes that pop up. Question number one, are they worth it? Statement number two, are crap, are terrible, are made where? So two out of four responses are pretty negative. Yes. Apple sells a lot of Beats merchandise. They sell the headphones, they sell the earbuds, they sell uh, Bluetooth speakers and so forth. And they sell an awful lot of this stuff. I think it's very safe to speculate that out of the 1.3, 1.5 billion-ish in revenues generated by Beats last year, a significant portion came from the sales in Apple stores. And another portion would come from people who intend to use these products, these Beats products, with Apple products. So by owning the company, Apple will get to keep all the money from those sales, and that will give a very large statistical boost to Apple sales figures in their retail division. And this is just for the existing Beats merchandise. Who knows what else Beats might be directed to develop and manufacture? And this is where we can start introducing the idea of Beats being brought in to boost Apple's wearable uh, ambitions, right? And if that, if that comes to play, if that comes to pass, we begin to see how you know, $3.2 billion could be a very smart long-term play. And let's face it, Apple has $150, $165 billion in the bank. $3.2 billion is what Tim Cook finds in his couch cushions. I'm surprised, though, that you went down the hardware side of it because the $3.2 billion acquisition also is for the Beats streaming music service. And as we've been reporting for quite some time now, Apple's iRadio service has received a rather lackluster response. And so has the Beats music service. They launched in January. They may have, if they're lucky, about 200,000 subscribers. So it's not about, at least short term, short term, it's not about the streaming music service. Long term, it might be, but certainly not short term. So let me let me just summarize this. I my friend Pete, who uh, works out in Silicon Valley, he he summarizes my my argument like this: Apple isn't moving products through the pipeline fast enough to keep the high dollars per square foot ratio that Wall Street loves. Apple buys Beats to keep the margins nice and high, and maybe even crush out some costs along the way. Tim Cook is famous for, and buy some time until the wearables thing shakes out. So there you go. That's my theory, and I'm standing by it. I could be full of crap. Apple moves in mysterious ways, but uh, this is this is the way I've, I've thought it through. So I shouldn't buy the Beats, huh? No, don't buy the Beats. Buy Sure. I have a pair of in-ear Sure uh, headphones. No, no, no. I don't want the in-ear. I want the over-the-ear. I've, I've got a, a pair of Sonys. What am I playing with right now? The MDXs? These are the MDR V150s. Those are really good. No, they're not, because you bleed through these headphones into my microphone, and I spend half the night editing this show just editing out the echo. Okay, well, that I don't mind, uh, because that's not my problem. Uh, <laughs> yes, it's my problem. So you need so you need something with, with a really tight seal. All right, there, there we go. Let's throw that out to the audience. We need uh, a recommendation for Michael. He needs a set of headphones with a really, really tight seal. And they have to be in the Apple Store. I've got like a $300 Apple Store credit. 
Oh, okay. Which is why I was moving down the line to the Beats. No, don't do that because they're they're all bottom heavy and and they're overpriced and. Uh, oh, I like big butts, and I cannot lie about that. Oh, okay, that's fine. Then then maybe this is where you you got your booty your your, your booty headphones. I'm looking at the site right now. They do have uh, Bose three hundred dollar Quiet Comfort acoustic uh, headphones. They're not bad. They're they're in this Time Magazine thing. And oh, I should find this for you. Aren't all headphones acoustic headphones? Mm, well, it depends <laughs> on your definition of what are urban ears. These are sixty bucks. Is there, is that even worth it? Dropping sixty bucks on a pair of headphones anymore? Um, Ooh, Parrot has a pair of headphones for four hundred bucks. There is something here. Well, I, two things. Hang on here. Uh, I'm going to show you, tell you something as soon as I call it up. First of all, here, I'll, uh, here I have an exhaustive ranking of 3,000 3, different headphones. This is done by Time Magazine. Number one, sure. Number two, Grado. Number three, Klipsch. Number four is Pioneer. Number five is Sony. AKG, Sennheiser, JVC, Audio-Technica, and Panasonic rather at the top ten. Beats is number 17. Uh, just below Skull Candy and just above Plantronics. <laughs> Ew, Plantronics. Yeah, I know. So that give you something here. Uh, oh, I'm looking at the Sennheiser ones here. These are a throwback to like 1978. Oh, you want a throwback? Get some Koss. I have a pair of Koss headphones yeah. that are probably five pounds. Like they, <laughs> they're huge. Uh, the most expensive headphones are uh well no I, i'll put that in the show notes too okay so when it comes down to it i need a new pair of cans yeah okay so. which by the way i was on tv talking about this dr dre thing and i asked my female co-host would you pay 300 dollars for a new pair of cans and she looked at me like i had just said the most offensive thing in the world well uh, she was probably thinking 300 dollars for a pair of cans man breast surgery has really come down in price i, I you know what and it didn't even occur to me until she she went, uh, excuse me? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think cans are, uh, are, are I mean, we've used them in, in the industry for a gazillion years. Um, it's, if you, if you, if you throw that term at somebody who is not well acquainted, um, <laughs> you're probably going to get slapped. <laughs> it's a good thing we were on the opposite sides of the set. <laughs> but I bet you, I bet you that the audience watching at home got some real giggles out of that one. Yeah, that was wholly unintentional, although nobody <laughs> believes me. One day I got hit by the jib camera. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the camera that, that's mounted on a big, long arm, and it's the kind of thing that Steven Spielberg uses for big, sweeping shots. Um, I got hit by it one day, and my executive producer yelled at me she thought i had done it on purpose oh yeah you would do that absolutely <laughs> it's like right up my alley to do <laughs> shtick on tv <laughs> yeah holy christ you hit me in the face with a camera own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show you too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. Have you seen the world's slowest surveillance camera? Uh, no, let's have a look at this. Gizmodo has this great article about a camera that takes a picture, a single, a single image over the course of 100 years. 
years. Ooh, so has this, they've just installed this right now, right? It's called the Century Camera, and it's a new project by an experimental philosopher, as he likes to call himself, Jonathan Keats. And it's a, a pinhole camera technology. So it's very low tech, but what it does is over the course of 100 years, it's exposing the, um, the film, as it were, in the camera. And what they do is they mount them in the sides of like mountains and buildings where you can get a, a nice big panorama view and what happens is over the course of 100 years that big apartment building that was front and center in the shot as it is dismantled and removed to make way for other developments 100 years later you'll look at that photo and it will be a ghost-like image so the older the element the more ghost-like it appears so that 100 years later on May 16th 2116 People can pull these cameras that have been mounted all around the world out and look at what the world looked like, not 100 years ago, but over the course of 100 years. So how many of these cameras have they mounted? They've only got, uh, at this point, a few of them, but you can buy one and install one yourself for the grand total cost of 10 euro. Ooh, I like this idea. It looks like a tuna fish can with yeah. the label removed. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. And, of course, there's no way of knowing whether 100 years from now that that camera is still going to be located in the same place. But the whole idea of creating a, a time capsule that evolves over the, its 100 years just fascinates me. Now, this is really neat. We'll never see the results, obviously. Clearly but, not. But wow, wouldn't that be a cool thing to see? There was something I saw recently. Um, I don't know. It was it was a time not time lapse, but they were comparing skylines of various cities over the course of above from about a hundred years, mm -hmm. and, it, and it was cool to see you know how Shanghai changed, how Toronto changed, how New York changed, how Hong Kong changed, how London changed. It's 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 neat, and I find it fascinating, but. Uh, this would be great because of the ghostly images. Oh, I like this idea. Well, wifey and I were in Paris. We uh, climbed to the top of Notre Dame, and I stood next to one of the gargoyles overlooking the City of Light and took a photo from the perspective of the gargoyle just over its shoulder mm -hmm. as it's looking towards the Eiffel Tower. And I thought, over the last 300 years, what a view that gargoyle has seen evolve no kidding everything from um you know the raising of paris to its uh to its resurrection to you know world war one and world war ii oh wow yeah the building of the tower itself yeah, yeah, yeah. at the time the eiffel tower was widely derided as being ugly oh yeah, of course, I know. now it's the the icon of paris yeah you can't imagine paris without the eiffel tower have you ever actually done a, a time capsule have i done a time capsule i think you'd know the answer right away yeah, no, I don't think, I'm just thinking if I did something as a kid where I put something in a box and buried it in the backyard, I don't think so. When we gutted the basement and put it all back together, I took a sealed container full of photographs, a USB stick, knowing full well that no one a hundred years from now will be able to read it. And I, I wrote an extensive description of my daughter. I put her birth certificate number in it, all this kind of stuff. And I wrote a letter to my little girl figuring that at some point we're going to grow old and die. We're going to ha have the house sold and somebody at some point is going to renovate the basement again and find it. And hopefully through the clues that I gave of my then 
three-month-old daughter, I would be able to know that someone could hunt her down, track her down, and actually present her with this letter I wrote to her when she was three months old. That's a neat idea. I, when I built my first house, I uh, took a, a Sharpie and wrote a note on one of the inside studs. Okay, I've got a story about that. When we took the walls down and took it right to the brick, the guy who previously owned my house was a, a biker. He was a hell's angel, and he was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. And he had himself written on one of the bricks, John McLean. Now, what would you write in addition to your name? The date? Uh, yeah. He wrote the address. <laughs> <laughs> like that brick might not be at my address at some point in the future. Okay, got a good point. Yeah, write the date. Write something witty. <laughs> oh, God. It's now covered over with spray foam insulation. No one's ever going to see that again. Yeah, thanks, John. Die hard, John. Yeah, John McLean, indeed. Eh? You want to talk about sneezing? Is it? Well, I'm. I, can you tell? I'm sick as a dog right now. No, are you? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I got the annual spring uh, sinus infection, courtesy of the, the leaves coming back and all that nonsense. Uh, yeah, I have some kind of post-Canadian Music Week uh, ailment that has rendered my joints useless. Oh, yeah. You know, you get into any large group of people, and it's inevitable at some point you're going to walk away with something. Last time you got sick, you were in Las Vegas. Yeah, it was the Consumer Electronics Show that gave it to me. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, last year, year before, I was at a conference in uh, Singapore. Same thing. And uh, Canadian Music Week. Uh, also, South by Southwest. You go to South by Southwest, you're guaranteed to come home with a cold. <laughs> or something infectious. Or something at worst, yes. MIT scientists have analyzed hundreds of high-speed sequences of sneezes, and they now have an accurate 3D model of, um, pardon the term, fluid cloud. <laughs> wow, look at this. Yeah. Uh, and what they've learned, among other things, is that the smaller droplets travel really far because of the cloud. It's almost the same reason why um, you see birds fly in a V formation. why birds flock in a V formation? Air resistance. Yeah, it's the aerodynamics of it. It's easier for the bird behind the lead bird to flap its wings, and it's even easier for the third bird behind the two other birds to flap its wings, and that's why they do it in a V formation. Yeah, and everybody gets a chance to go at the front. So, really? I didn't know that. Yeah. H how do they determine that? Do they draw straws? No, no. The, well, when the guy at the front gets tired, he drops back, and the next guy moves into his place. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, so uh, MIT News, which, by the way, MIT.edu has an MIT News page, which is really fascinating because they take this really incredibly complex scientific stuff that their chief eggheads come up with, and they put it into language that you and I understand. And so this research um, by MIT shows that coughs and sneezes have associated gas clouds that keep their potentially infectious droplets aloft over much greater distances than previously realized, five to 200 times further than they would if the droplets simply moved as groups of unconnected particles. Ooh, okay. Hundreds upon hundreds of meters. What? Hundreds of meters? No, I'm joking. A couple of meters, according to the larger drops, but the smaller they are, the further they go. A micro drop one millionth of a meter can travel 200 times farther than a droplet that is 50 micrometers. So in other words, if you're going to sneeze, make sure it's a real juicy one. Oh, yeah, if you want to make sure that everybody else around you gets sick. No, 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 the opposite. The larger the droplet of the sneeze, the shorter the distance. 
Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. All right. So you, <laughs> your, 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 your blast radius, you want to keep to, to a minimum. Exactly. Ah. And of course, it's funny because I was back to the consumer electronics show. We don't bring a camera crew with us. We hire local guys from KTLA in Los Angeles. And uh, they said, you know, one thing that we noticed about you Canadians is you sneeze into your arms why do you sneeze into your elbows we all sneeze into our hands yes and that's why america is full of germs well the the explanation is actually quite simple because we have the healthcare system that we have in canada this whole centralized healthcare system unlike the americans we actually have a single unified message that our healthcare profession can impart upon the population as opposed to the american system which is all a patchwork so we can have a unified conversation with canadians about what to do when you sneeze or just sneeze into your elbow right whereas americans will sneeze into their hands and then they'll grab for a doorknob mm. see that's uh, i what an interesting freakonomics sort of explanation that's very good Exactly. Uh, so there you go. Whatever you do, if you're going to sneeze, first of all, sneeze into your elbow. And if you can't, make sure that it's a real juicy one and you aim it as far away as possibly could. Did you know it is physically impossible for you to sneeze and keep your eyes open? Yes, which is why driving with me is very dangerous. I'm one of these guys who never sneezes just once. I used to go in threes. Now I'm back down to twos. I don't know why. But, uh, yeah, you don't want to be driving with me when I'm sneezing because you could end up in, in someplace really, really awful. I sneeze minimum three. If it's five or more, you know I'm fighting something. Stay away from me. Oh, okay. Which brings us to your new favorite website, Spurious Correlations. I love this. It's, it's, this sort of plays into this whole notion that vaccines cause autism. Correlation does not mean causation. Now, let's stop there for a second, because we've heard that phrase a lot on the Innertron, but I don't think a lot of people understand really what it means. Right. Okay. What it means is just because two things seem to go together doesn't mean one causes the other. Thank you. Yes. So uh, people say, well, my kid was fine until they got their vaccinations. And as a result, uh, vaccinations therefore cause the kid's autism. Well, that's that's spurious, spurious. So there's this new side, this <laughs> the spurious correlations. And, and, and just to give you an example of some of these, I think they're fantastic. Uh, for example, the divorce rate in Maine versus the per capita consumption of margarine in the United States. The two, li <laughs> they, the, the two lines match up almost identically. People who died by falling out of a wheelchair, the graph correlates almost identically to the cost of a 16-ounce bag of potato chips. Number of people who died by becoming tangled in their bedsheets versus total revenue to buy skiing facilities, almost perfectly lined up. It's, I love this. So just because, again, people... Just because one thing seems to go on, uh, together with something on the other does not mean that they are related in any way. For example, per capita consumption of mozzarella cheese with uh, correlating with civil engineering doctorates awarded in the United States. The one that amuses me the most is the number of people who drowned by falling into a swimming pool is highly correlated to the number of films Nicolas Cage appears in. <laughs> Listen to me, you're Nicolas Cage. No one can ever take that away from you. But after The Sorcerer's Apprentice, Bangkok Dangerous, Knowing, Ghostwriter, Next, Wicker Man, you need to be a little bit more selective about your films, Nikki. Selective, Gary? All right, for example, this just came in today. I've got it right here. You'd be playing a prisoner who asks if he can leave 
And the warden says yes. And then I leave? Yeah, that's it. Not a very interesting story. So this is the kind of picture you shouldn't be doing. <laughs> I'm in. What'd you say? I said I'm in. I'm gonna let that one slide, Nick, but your reputation is at stake. You have to be a little bit more discerning. I like being in movies, Gary. I know that you do, but you have to say no to some of them. Like this new one, where the hero is a Nazi who can only speak in adverbs. Let's do it. Wait, no, Nick, come on. Now I want you to think hard about this, okay? You'd be playing Superman. I love it. Let me finish. Superman's cat. You'd be playing Superman's cat. I love it, Gary. And everyone on this bus is vomiting, except for your character who has diarrhea. Count me in. Now, if you're looking for this yourself, um, just type spurious correlations into the Googletron because uh, it's not actually the name of the website. It's Tyler Vigan who yeah. has put all of these together. For example, the number of people who drowned versus the Nick Cage films from 1999 to 2009, he's put them on graphs. And it's fascinating to see the connection between the two. Of course, there is no connection, but it appears very much like there is. Per capita consumption of sour cream in the United States versus motorcycle riders killed in non-collision transport accidents. Jeez, you know, we got we to gotta fight back against big sour cream. <laughs> big sour cream. Yeah, that's it. Number of people who drowned while in a swimming pool correlates with power generated by nuclear power plants. See? You've got this fascinating story of the production of music of production music. You know what I'm talking about when I say library music and production music, right? Right. Like, for example, this show, the theme was purchased from a stock music website where, you know, a dozen other people have downloaded the same music and they're using it for different things. And I don't have to pay the guy who made it every time we play it. No. So you buy it outright. And there are people that spend an awful lot of time writing these these generic for sale pieces of music that uh, radio stations can use, TV stations can use, webcasters can use, um, movie studios can use, and in some cases, uh, even big stars will will avail themselves to this production music and incorporate it for whatever reason into their into their original compositions it's it's i'll put it in the show notes and you can understand uh you can you can read about it and how it all comes together and and this is this is an industry that employs thousands of people um i remember that uh, when i was running a radio station every year sometimes every two years we would set aside some money in the budget for the guys who made the commercials to go out and buy a new production music library and we would get uh, used to we the, the stuff used to come on uh, on vinyl then it came on tape and then for a long time, it came in these huge albums, these huge binders full of CDs. Oh, I used to go through the giant binders of CDs. And I have to tell you, of the 500 CDs that um, the radio station at which I worked had at the time, probably 95% of the music was total crap. Yeah, and, and, and everybody fought over the, the 10 or 15 variations uh, of, of the good stuff. This was an industry that isn't new. It's been around since 1927. Yeah, people started putting together this stuff that you could purchase for a, a modest fee, just like you can purchase uh, photographs online for, for your website or for your advertising campaign or for whatever it is. Um, for, for, for that long. I didn't realize uh, people had been making library music for that long. But it makes sense because uh, that 1927, you know, you're starting to get into the era of talkie films. And uh, maybe maybe you can't afford the, the, the piano player for your silent film. So you have somebody have a, a phonograph or a gramophone 
um, playing some music uh, while the silent film played instead of having the piano player. And you fast forward uh, several decades to today. You, you pointed out that the big shot musicians today actually do use pieces of production music royalty-free production music in their own compositions like Beyonce's Woman Like Me. Do you think you could fall for a woman like me? Cause I find it hard to trust. I need too much and I really don't believe in love. No yeah, I mean, if I'm the guy that, that, that uh, composed that, if I'm the woman that composed that, I'm a bit pissed. I'm a bit pissed, so. Oh, can I, uh, before we go any further, speaking of a journal of musical things, did you hear what happened on Thursday? What happened on Thursday? Uh, it was named, uh, or I guess I was named, uh, Music Journalist of the Year at the Canadian Music Industry Awards. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Did you know this was coming down? I barely knew it was coming down. It was the first year for this particular uh, category. But, uh, and I, you know, uh, A is the first letter of the alphabet. So I think I was, <laughs> I was, I was first on the nomination sheet. So everybody just. Oh, come on. But yeah, that's nice. That's nice. That is great. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. Now, now, was the Journal of Musical Things specifically mentioned? Yes, it was. Excellent. So it's your website. And that you've built, that you've done, and all the research and all the articles. And quite frankly, there is a metric assload, not an imperial assload, a metric mm -hmm. assload of content on that site. Yes, there is. Now, I think what we should do, since I've already uh, won the inaugural award, we should figure out a way to get uh, Geeks and Beats up there. Okay, and maybe we can actually get Jason Tolman, who has come on board as a writer, as a potential inductee. Yes, I met him at Canadian Music Week. No, no, it was something else. I did run into him, but yes, we need to get him going. Have we paid him anything yet? I mean, not money, but have we done anything with him yet? No, absolutely nothing. We did a big uh, Google Hangout where I showed him behind the scenes how to work on the website, and I tweeted out on uh, your account, my account, and the Geeks and Beats account that we were doing a live behind-the-scenes glimpse as to how the site worked. Do you know how many people watched that? Four. Zero. <laughs> Waking in the rubble Walking over glass Neighbors say what trouble Well, the time has passed Eurovision has come and gone, and uh, Vox.com had an interesting explanation for anyone who was not European as to what the hell Eurovision is. Eurovision is like the voice and X Factor and Idol on weird steroids with a gigantic dollop of nationalism thrown in. But can, can you look at American Idol and all of the American versions of these types of, of singing competitions and say they had their roots in Eurovision? Maybe you can. Eurovision's been around since the 1950s. Exactly. And you have uh, each of the nations having uh, local playdowns to determine a representative for the overall Eurovision competition. This year, there were 37 different nations participating, and the winner ended up being this person called Trinkita uh, Wurst, who is a uh, Aus Austrian drag queen who has a full beard. <laughs> now, what you have what you have to understand about Eurovision, what makes Eurovision so brilliant, is that some of the weirdest, some of the most out of left field artists contestants, performers end up. I mean, a couple of years ago, maybe it was last year, there was a bunch of, uh, where were they from? Lithuania or Ukraine? Uh, like like 85-year-old Ukrainian babas singing. Okay, so how does it come about, considering it's a multinational thing, how does Eurovision determine 
who from each country gets to perform for ultimately the fan voting, because it's fan voting, and 170 million people watch this thing. I know it's absolutely huge. Uh, yeah, so it's yeah, it's 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 fan voting. It's the people call on their phones. Okay, so how does a, a seven-year-old babushka end up on the show? Who gets to decide the the country or Eurovision itself? No, the the you, you each country sends a representative to the overall competition, and whoever comes out of the country comes out of the country. So it's basically the Olympics for musicians and singers. In in Europe and yeah, yes, exactly. You, it's been described by Vox.com as um, taking American Idol and putting it into the structure of the NCAA men's basketball tournament structure, bracket structure. Right, because you ha you have this bracket, and then you you inject it full of drugs uh, <laughs> because it is just so surreal, and the the weirdest stuff comes out of this. It's absolutely you're trying to explain it to somebody who is not in Europe and doesn't understand the history of Eurovision is impossible. I mean, I mean, there have been some very good uh, people that have come out of Eurovision. Uh, 1974, the winner was ABBA with their song Waterloo. And look what happened to ABBA. They ended up selling a billion records. Well, you don't have to win Eurovision either to become major. 1958, we had uh, Domenico Mundungo perform Volare. Didn't win, but it became an international mega hit as a result. Oh, yes. Celine Dion performed for Switzerland in 1988. If you look back to 2006, uh, Lordi is kind of like a like a weird dark metal band. 1997 competition, Katrina and the Waves. Yes. You thought that they were done after Walking on Sunshine. They won. Well, they were done after Walking on Sunshine. Yeah, they were. But then they, they won Eurovision. They did okay. How did Celine Dion end up? Representing Switzerland? Yeah, that's really weird. Well, they can have her, quite frankly. Well, they can. I'm just, just wondering how she ended up doing that. That's That seems like a bit of skullduggery there. Yes, they call it uh, silly rule-bending shenanigans on Vox. Oh, Sandy Shaw won in 1967. Sandy Shaw is a big favorite of Morrissey and the Smiths. So what does it tell you that a drag queen with a full beard won the Eurovision Championship? It means that everybody thought it would be really, really cool if a drag queen with a beard won just to stick it to the man. It's kind of like when Rage Against the Machine was voted up to number one for uh, Christmas number one in the UK, just so Simon Cowell would get stuck with uh, number two. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. We were talking last week about how we had brought on not only a writer, but also a webmaster to the big show, and that considering uh, as big as this show is getting, maybe we needed a human resources manager. Yeah. We've got someone willing to step up and take on that role. Uh, to do what? To be our HR consultant. Darren Simonelli tweeted to us uh, that uh, we would be okay with this whole issue of not paying our interns if he came on board. Okay. Might be wise. Well, what, what do we do about the, the issue of drinking at work? Is that a, an issue? Well, it depends. What's our human rights, our human resources policy? Well, I guess we'll have to get Darren to sign us up for one. 
you know, Darren is going to have to actually create. Yes, he's going to have to create one for us. I don't think we're going to have a problem with this. Are we going to have to have corporate values? And are we have to going to have to uh, have uh, like a grievance system and, and all the other stuff? What about, uh, what about what about what about benefits? What about uh, you know? Am I going to have to every quarter fill out some sort of HR form that tells me what my goals are for the next five years? Performance reviews, exactly. What are uh, we going to do? Man, yeah, performance reviews in our line of work. Absolutely ridiculous when it comes to that whole, where do you see yourself in five years type nonsense? It's always been described as, as a paper pushing exercise by our industry. This is the kind of thing that people who don't work in a performance environment would fill out. It makes no sense to get a, a TV or radio personality to fill one out. No, I, 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 some, I agree with you. I think what these reviews are good for are making sure that you're doing the job that you were paid for. However, that's not something that should be done twice a year. That's something that your boss should be looking over your shoulder doing uh, every single day of the year. All right, Darren. So fill out a human resources form for us. Get us all set up. Get all the forms, all the paperwork. Just drowned us in paper pushing. Yeah. Let's, yeah. And, and uh, try not to take it too seriously. In fact, uh, the less serious you take it, the more serious we'll take you. We talked about how you would get potheads interested in the symphony after the Colorado Symphony had a uh, The High Note, which I thought was a brilliant title mm -hmm. for their symphony series uh, geared towards potheads. Gary Williams tweeted into us saying that um, for him, what worked for him as a pothead to get interested in the symphony? A clockwork orange. He's right. He's right, because that was one of the first... Um, actually, it was Walter Carlos. It was still Walter, not Wendy. Uh, Walter Carlos did the uh, the symphonic score for Clockwork Orange for, for uh, Stanley Kubrick. And before Clockwork Orange came out, uh, Walter had been very, very successful with switched on Bach and switched on Beethoven using these giant modular synthesizers. So, yeah, that's a really good point. I, I point taken. Walter became Wendy. Yes. Really? Yes. I'm, I'm pulling this up on the Wikipedia here. Go on. I know somebody who actually was a Walter Carlos fan and over uh, managed to actually meet Wendy. So, yes. Uh, Wendy Carlos, born Walter Carlos, November 14, 1939, is an American composer and electronic musician. 1939. Mm -hmm. That's a, that would have been a big deal for someone in the 70s to make that switch. Yeah, it, well, it, it was. I mean, you know, this whole idea of gender reassignment was uh, was 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 very very new. Uh, I think we started hearing about it in the 1950s. Uh, it was still very very. Um, you you didn't talk about these things. 1968 began hormone treatments and began living full time as a woman. Yep, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. And we today, it's no big deal. No, it's not. I mean, for example, we had a name, guy named Tom Gable who was uh, the, the head of a band called uh, Against Me, a very good punk, punky sort of band. Um, Tom Gable is now uh, Lara Jane Grace. Well, you had the Wachowski brothers as well who did The Matrix. Right. So one of them is now living as a woman. I don't know which one, though. Mm, no, neither do I. I. Okay. Now, when you tweeted this leaked Beyonce Jay-Z concert writer, uh, concert tour writer, yeah, I'm getting all kinds of flack for this. Okay, now it's quite clear that when BuzzFeed put this together, this that this was a uh, that this was fake. Let's have a look. The thing is, is that one of the the best things about a, a gag like this is that its roots are in truth. Any good gag has its roots in truth, and so with that in mind, when we learn that 
Beyonce, as part of her concert rider, required that the toilet paper in her restroom be red. Hold on. Hang on. I think that one's true. No, that's what I'm getting at. Oh, okay. That was because you can actually buy red toilet paper. Right. It is a thing that exists. So after we looked at that and went, you're kidding me. Beyonce requires her toilet paper be red. Then BuzzFeed puts together this alleged leaked Beyonce Jay-Z tour rider, which includes some of the most outrageous things. I want to ask you, how far down into this concert rider did you get before you went, all this has got to be fake. Listen, if you believe that exactly 4,444 M&Ms divided even, evenly into four golden bowls is a real thing, uh, which is the first item on the list, you got a problem. Not necessarily, because as we discussed previously, the big reason why Van Halen's concert rider required that they not have brown M&Ms in the bowl was that they wanted to ensure that the rider had been read down to the last word so that when they stood up on stage, the stage didn't collapse after that had in fact happened one time when a promoter didn't read the rider mm. um, four life-sized ice sculptures of Beyonce's legs kept at exactly 24 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 4 Celsius see but I, I don't necessarily think that that one is wrong because maybe that was a stage prop no but that this is sort of the behind the scenes this is under the food and drink column this wasn't on the up on stage column right okay good point good point um, quote, lighting should be designed so that an outside observer upon entering the room would exclaim, girl, is this heaven? Yeah. Okay. So when we get there, one person in exactly four feet tall should carry a MacBook Pro and record Beyonce throughout the front facing camera at all times. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That was the one. That was the one that made me go, oh, this is definitely fake because a MacBook Pro does not have a front facing camera. It doesn't? No. It's it, It's got a camera that faces you, but it does not face the front. Oh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's the thing that tricked you up? That was the one. It wasn't the life-size ice sculptures of Beyonce's legs. It wasn't the exactly four cigars embossed with the numeral four served over ice. The titanium drinking stars, the vegan cow... It was the fact that a MacBook Pro doesn't have a front-facing camera. I know. it was the, That was the one. Uh, there's also a, uh, a note at the bottom that says, In the event the venue receives a package of, quote, mysterious vegan treats, quote, curated by Gwyneth Paltrow, do not open. <laughs> okay. All right. So, okay. Some people took this a little bit too seriously. <laughs> and then if, if by the time you got to the last page, you didn't know it was fake... The one that really should have tipped you off was the red landline telephone with direct lines to Pharrell, Justin Timberlake, and the Oval Office. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.